Okay, today we will be in um, Ezra. The passage we'll be reading today to set the stage for the message is Ezra 10, verses 1 through 12. Feel free to read through them together with me, or you could just listen. Ezra chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Then, God, then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Johanian the son of Elishib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that if anyone did not come within the next three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and have married foreign women and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of this land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so, we must do as you have said. This is the very word of God. I don't know what you uh, hoped you would be when you were young, what your career vocation path you thought you might take. But I wonder how many of you have arrived. You've gotten to the fulfillment of all of your plans. Everything that you purposed to achieve, you've made it. Most of us, I'm sure, still are holding out hope. We still think that maybe we'll get there. 
We're moving in the right direction. Or perhaps for some of you, you've given up and your plans have been shattered. I'm here to tell you this morning that the promise of Jeremiah 2911 is still true. God has a plan for you and it is a great plan. God's plan for your life is far greater. Listen, God's plan for your life is far greater than you have ever planned or hoped for yourself. God has a purpose. He has a plan for your future that is incredibly more dramatic and amazing and good and wonderful than you ever dared to dream. God's plans for you, according to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, is nothing less than that you become a partaker of the divine nature. That's what the Bible says. Now, I'm not preaching 2 Peter 1. I might do that in a few more weeks. At least that's the plan I have. But I want you to just ponder it for a moment. God's purpose and plan for your future is that you would become a partaker of the divine nature, that, that you would become in some way like God himself, some way holy as God is holy. The hope for God's people, the plan that God has for you, is that you would be holy. And that's an incredibly wonderful plan. And yet, when we open our Bibles and we come to a, chap- to a section of Scripture like the one before us this morning, we find this truth that the hope for God's people depends upon the pursuit of the holiness that is rooted only in the mercy and grace of God. The hope for God's people that you will get there is rooted in or depends upon us pursuing what God's purpose, what God plans for us, what God wants for us, namely holiness. And yet this is a holiness that comes only in and by the mercy and grace of God, never apart from it. Never apart from it. So as we conclude our study of the book of Ezra this morning, I want to speak to you about God's hope. God's hope for us to be holy. God's hope for us to be holy. And there is still hope for you, Christian, because this is what God's going to do in your life. There is still hope for you. But before we understand this, we need to understand first the hindrance to holiness. What keeps us back? What's the obstacle in the way? Second, the help for holiness. How are we going to get there? And then last, the hope, the hope for holiness, the hindrance to holiness, the help for holiness, and then the hope for holiness. So let's jump in. The, The last two chapters of the book of Ezra Tell us about a sin problem among the people of Israel who have returned from their captivity in Babylon. And make no mistake, sin is the great hindrance to holiness. They cannot exist together. Indeed, it is an infinitely greater threat than anything that comes to us externally. We've learned in the book of Ezra that there are two plots that Ezra puts together, one that occurs 
70, 80 years before his own time, and then the one that he's retelling in his own day. He puts these two plots together to show us that indeed there are external threats to the people of God. But however great those external threats are, we saw in the first six chapters, chapters 7 to 10 emphasize to us the greatest threat, the greatest obstacle, the greatest hindrance in the way to God's future hope for you is the problem that comes from within. It's the problem of sin. Would more Christians be more concerned with our own sin than with the sins of the world? The first two verses of chapter 9 lay out the sin that was discovered. Here's what it says. After these things had been done, the officials approached me, Ezra, and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost." You can see that the sin of the people is found somewhere in the fact that some of the returnees have taken spouses from among the pagan peoples around them. But now let's pause for just a moment. Because often whenever we ask whether or not this particular act is a sin, the answer often requires a deeper examination, as is certainly the case here. It would be a huge mistake, for example, to use a text like this to argue that the Bible condemns all marriages that are between different races or ethnicities of people. Now, I don't think I have to say that here, but I'm doing it anyway. I hope you do not read a text like this in that way, but many people have and probably still do. In fact, it wasn't until 1967, barely 50 years ago, that the Supreme Court of the United States struck down laws in 16 states that prohibited interracial marriage. Plus, some, just barely 50 years ago. So I wouldn't be surprised if seeds of doubt about the rightness of interracial marriage lingers in the minds of many American Christians, and when they read a text like this, becomes planted even more deeply. In fact, um, the church that I attended when I was young taught exactly that. They used a passage like this one to say that since there was such a strong reaction to and great consequences from an episode of mixed marriages, as they called it in the Bible, then the Bible would at least be suggesting that maybe it's not expedient to marry someone from another race, ethnicity, or nationality. I'm guessing many of you were not taught that, but those seeds of doubt, seeds of doubt might make you wonder if maybe interracial marriage isn't a sin, but perhaps it should be avoided if at all possible. But of course, we ought to see it altogether differently. Interracial marriage is not something that should be tolerated, but something that among the people of God ought to be celebrated. It's not something merely permissible for God's people. It is something beautiful. 
One of the most celebrated marriages in the Bible is between a Jew named Boaz and a Moabite named Ruth, from whose union came King David and the Lord Jesus himself. So let's make sure we're not reading the text wrongly at the very least. What then is happening in a text like this? Where is the sin that is happening in Ezra chapter 9? Later in the chapter in Ezra's prayer that Eddie just read for us, Ezra points out that this kind of intermarriage is in direct defiance of God's command. In verse 12, he cites from a passage like Deuteronomy 7 verse 3, which expressly forbids intermarriage with the foreign people in the promised land. The same prohibition is found in Exodus 34, verse 16. Now, if you take both of those passages and look at them, the reason for the prohibition is abundantly clear. In both of those passages, God's people are not to intermarry with the people around them, for, Deuteronomy 7 and 4 verse says, they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. In other words, The concern in those passages, and since Ezra is appealing to those passages, the same concern must be happening here. The concern was clearly spiritual. So here we can draw a clear line of application. It's the same concern that's found in the New Testament in the prohibition of Christians marrying non-Christians. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. So if you are not married, you should only be seeking, if you're a Christian, to, be, to marry someone who is in the faith, who is a believer in Christ. That is the clear biblical teaching. The sin here, as verse 2 makes it plain, is the compromising of the purity of what Ezra calls the holy race, which, do I really need to say it, is none of the ethnicities or races of people on earth. None of us are righteous, none of us are holy, and none of us are more righteous or more holy than any other ethnicity or race. God's people should know that. So we saw last week this holy race, even in Ezra's day, no longer included every single ethnic Jew, but only those who returned from exile and thereby took the risk of faith in God's covenant promises to them. The concern of this passage is with the purity of those who are counted among God's people. Therefore, this passage is not teaching us as Christians primarily about marriage, but about the problem of sin for those of us who have said yes to God. For those of us who, as a catechism teaches, are engaged to be the Lord's. Having been united to Christ, believer, don't you see who you are? Having been been united to Christ by his grace through faith in Jesus, we belong to God. We are his. We are exclusively his. And it is because of the relationship that God has initiated with us and promised us that sin among God's people is a problem. So we got to talk about this this morning. We got to talk about the problem of sin among God's people. Sin for the Christian is, in biblical terms, an act of adultery. Adultery. Exodus 34, 16, the passage that 
uh, it's probably in Ezra's mind, the warning that follows the prohibition against marrying the peoples of the lands is that they will cause one to whore after other gods. And the key term in these two chapters, it occurs five times, is the word faithlessness. You saw it first in verse 2 of chapter 9. Sin, in whatever form, is for the Christian spiritual infidelity. And it is just as appalling, devastating as marital infidelity. It's an abomination. We cannot be careless about it. We've got to be vigilant against it. Unfortunately, our instincts are to see and recognize the sin in others far more quickly than we see it in ourselves. We are especially good, I've noticed, in my own heart, at recognizing the sin in the world among non-Christians while tolerating and giving it a pass much more among ourselves. And Ezra, at the very least, would have us to be a bit more introspective and take the sins among us a bit more seriously. And this is particularly to be the case within and among God's people today, the one that Peter calls a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is who we are as people of God. Sin is a problem, especially within and among the church, and together, 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 we need to take this problem seriously. Ezra was not among those who sinned in this way. He wasn't among those who had married with those who were leading people away spiritually. And yet, he doesn't shrug it off as, it is, as if it is no concern to him. He's not just sitting there as an individual member of God's covenant saying, well, that's too bad that those brothers and sisters over there have sinned. He is devastated by it. There are individual sinners here. In fact, their names are recorded. Man, that's not where you want to get your name written. The end of chapter 10, their names are recorded in the public record. But in, in, in fact, in Ezra 9, verse 2, just take a look. This is appalling. We are told that the officials and chief men were among the most unfaithful in this particular sin. It's still a shock today, isn't it? Even if it's no longer surprising. When the grossest sins in the church are discovered among the leaders of our churches and other Christian ministries. Sin is still a problem in the church, and it should be of great concern. It it needs to be a concern for us. It should be a concern individually, but it should be, as Ezra shows us, a concern corporately. The story Ezra tells us here doesn't just illustrate that discouraging reality. It also tells us what we should do about it. How, How should we respond to the prevalence, the reality of sin, even among God's covenant people, even in the church. It's because sin is a problem that prayer becomes a priority. Ezra, notice, is appalled by the unfaithfulness of his people. That's evident from his response in verse 3. It's a pretty uh, traditional response in the Eastern world, especially the ancient Eastern world, the way he responds in verse 3. But again, notice it's, 
This is the response that Ezra has to the sin of others, not to a sin that he himself has committed. Christians today should take note that our carelessness toward the holiness of others may betray our indifference or our unbelief to the kingdom of God. If you are just living individually and you're not concerned about the holiness of the brother or sister sitting next to you or in front of you, that only betrays the fact that we don't really believe in or hope in the reality of what Christ came to do among us. He came to establish his kingdom. How concerned are we then for the holiness of our brothers and sisters? Do we see our own spiritual welfare as intertwined with theirs. I think that the holiest people are those who are the first to confess, the quickest to notice the sin in their own hearts and admit it and confess it. So Ezra does just that. Notice in his prayer in verses 6 to 15, this prayer, this is the reason I had, um, this is the reason I want us to focus on this here in the second point, because this prayer is, as one commentator says, the theological heart of the entire narrative of Ezra. So if you've missed everything we've said the last several weeks in this study, this prayer should grab our attention. Ezra's prayer is his plea for help. This is what we should do. There's a hindrance to holiness. It's sin, remaining sin, indwelling sin. It's here. It's among us. It's in our own hearts. It should be a grave concern for us as the people of God. We should be more concerned about the holiness of our brothers and sisters and the collective holiness of God's people, more concerned there than we are about what's happening in our world today. So Ezra's prayer is his plea for help in the pursuit of holiness, and prayer is what we should do today as well. Let's take a closer look and notice not just that Ezra prays. I'm not so concerned, like, okay, are you praying at all? But here, how do we pray? How do we pray? How do we ask for help as we pursue this great promise of God? The first thing that Ezra does is perhaps the most counterintuitive. He accepts the shame and does not shift the blame. I tried to make it memorable for us. Because this is the most counterintuitive thing. He accepts the shame of sin and does not in any way shift the blame. Look what he says, verses 6 and 7. Oh, my God, I am ashamed. I blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to utter shame." as it is today. Sin, if we saw it the way God sees it, is every time shameful and embarrassing. 
In fact, the prophet Jeremiah rebuked God's people before the exile for their lack of shame, for not even being able to blush at their sin, Jeremiah 6.15. But Ezra admits the shame, the shame that he himself did not commit. His instincts were not to say, well, that's not my problem. His instincts were to say, hmm, yes, in accepting shame, Ezra identifies himself with those who had sinned rather than putting himself above them. And that is how we ought to pray. We ought to pray with a confession that's willing to not hide from the shame or in any way shift it onto someone else, but to say, I see in their act a reflection of what's in my own heart. It's almost as if the sin that Ezra has now come face to face with in others represents what he knows lingers in his own heart. And that's a crucial step in dealing with the problem of sin. You and I will either run away from God, trying to rid ourselves of shame in our own way, making excuses for ourselves, deceiving ourselves into thinking that at least we're not like those people, or we'll run to him in prayer, humbly accepting our responsibility for it. In verses 8 and 9, Ezra moves on in his prayer to the recognition of God's mercy. He says this, But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God. Now, so far, up until chapter 9 in our story, the last couple chapters have been moving along toward a glorious end for the returnees from exile. But here, Ezra notes just how merciful God had been. He notices that they are still slaves. They are under the authority of the Persian government. And we've seen in the first plot, verse 6 chapters, just how volatile that can be for them. But God had given them what he calls a little reviving in our slavery. God had fulfilled his promise in bringing the people back to the land 70 years after the temple had been destroyed. Even in the midst of the consequences of sin, Ezra had noticed the compassion which God had shown to his people. He hadn't forsaken them in their slavery. He had extended to them his steadfast love. God has been doing everything that he can to give them hope. God had shown them that his heart for them was for their welfare, just as he had promised in Jeremiah 29. So I'm going to ask you a question. How do you see the mercy of God? How do you see the mercy of God? Do you think of God's mercy as if God is a God of wrath, finally relenting when you beg for mercy? Or do you see that God is, as one Puritan once put it, more tender of you than you are or can be of yourself? If you see God that way, then your shame the shame of sin will drive you toward the God of mercy, never away from him. 
you will see that this is a God whose heart beats with compassion for you, who's longing for you to be free. And when you sin, you will not run away from him, you'll run to him. But then notice in verses 10 to 15, Ezra's prayer directs us still to where we usually are not willing to go, to affirming the righteous justice of God. He admits his shame. He recognizes how God is a God of mercy. But then, this is what he does. He recalls God's command that the people have violated, verses 11 and 12. We already talked about that. But then he says this, beginning in verse 13. Look what it says. And after all that has come upon us, For our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? So what will happen if we sin? This is what Ezra's Ezra's taking us here. What happens if we sin? God shows us mercy, and then we just keep on going. We just keep on presuming upon God's mercy and continue to sin. What happens if that cycle just goes that direction? What happens if the final word is always we just keep on sinning? How is it all going to end? If the mercy of God does not lead us to holiness, but instead to the multiplication of more sin, is that going to end well? Ezra doesn't think so, and in this he is in line with the teaching of the New Testament. It's why the author of Hebrews warns Christians that if we go on sinning deliberately, After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. In other words, if we who have seen the salvation from sin, the rescue from our rebellion, is rooted and grounded only in the grace and mercy of God, what will happen to us if we rebel against God's grace and mercy? And the answer is obvious. Hebrews 10, 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so Ezra's prayer ends in verse 15 without any request for pardon. It's simply a declaration of the righteous justice of God. He's left with nothing, no excuse, and apparently no hope. No hope for rescue in light of how far God's people have gone away from the ray of God's mercy to them. Ezra's prayer ends without any word of hope. And that is precisely where hope is found. Ezra's prayer ends without any word of hope. He's got nothing to offer up to God. And that, my friends, is exactly and only where hope is found. We turn the chapter now, chapter 10, and we find the hope. Here's the hope for holiness. We know what the hindrance is. It's indwelling sin. It's remaining sin. It's a big deal among the people of God. Let's not be, let's not, let's not take that as if it's insignificant. Let's press into it. Let's not excuse 
the guilt of our sin. Let's embrace it. Let's recognize how merciful God has been to us. And let's come to him with nothing to offer. And here's what happens. Look what chapter 10 says. There's a solution that's proposed. A solution is proposed. It's while Ezra is praying, confessing, lamenting. Here comes this guy, Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam. And he addresses Ezra. He says this, We have broken faith with our God. We have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Even now, no matter how far we've sinned, there is hope. You just sang it. His mercy is more. His mercy is more. There is still hope. Now, here's this guy, Shechaniah. Um, probably the most underrated guy in the Bible. <laughs> I don't know many people who know much, I didn't know much, about Shechaniah. I've never met somebody named Shechaniah, but maybe that's a, anybody, you should, middle name. That's a good middle name, Shechaniah. Okay, here he is. There's at least six different individuals in the Bible with this same name. So if you find him elsewhere, it's probably a different Shechaniah. But here's what matters. You don't know much about him, but look what he did. He recognized the hope that there still was for Israel in spite of their great sin. And so he goes into action. He goes into action. How did he know? I'm asking, how did he know that there was still hope? Ezra's prayer leaves us thinking, if Israel's going to keep doing the same things that got him sent into exile in the first place, what hope could there be? And Shechaniah says to Ezra, there's still hope. In spite of this great sin, in spite of this infidelity, there is still hope. How, how did he know? What, on what could he ground this hope? And you might be tempted to say, from what he suggests in the next verse, that Shechaniah thought, Hope was found in acts of repentance. In other words, if Israel will repent, there's hope. But I'm here to tell you, your biblical instincts should make you say, that, that's probably not right. That's probably not where the ground for hope is found. Because if Israel's sin here is as bad as we have suggested, infidelity, then hope cannot be found, it cannot be grounded in Israel turning from the sin, stopping their sin. That might be helpful, but it's not going to be the hope. You can go back to our key verse in the second plot. It's Ezra 8, verse 22, and the principle that was stated there. Here's what Ezra said. The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. The power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So Israel's hope in the midst of their great sin can only be rooted in one thing, namely a God who punishes less than our iniquities deserve, Ezra 9.13. So let me try to make that plain. Our natural instinct is to think the hope is in us 
breaking off the sin, turning away from it, that's where the hope is found. But Ezra knows, and the Bible teaches, that hope can only be rooted and grounded in one place, and that is in the mercy of God and his grace. How can there be hope when sin increases? If we go on sinning, Hebrews says, after we've heard the truth, after we've come to know the truth, then what hope could there be? What hope could there be? And the Bible's answer is, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. The hope we have for holiness is still the mercy and grace of God, which flows naturally from his character and never runs out. If you want God's mercy, if you need his grace, then come to him and you will have it every single time. Every single time. So I'm saying there is a danger here in reading a text like this and thinking and concluding, okay, I've sinned greatly, so let me do an act that will atone for the sin. And I'm saying to you, that's hopeless. That is hopeless. Because your sin deserves the righteous justice of God. The only hope, the only hope that is ever found remains still the grace and mercy of God in Jesus. So then what? If there is still hope, what should we do? And that's an appropriate question, but only after you grasp that the hope that is found is rooted only in a God of grace. Otherwise, what comes next in the story, what comes next in your response, will still be a hopeless confidence in yourself and not in a God of mercy. You see, the hope that is found in Israel's God ought to lead us to acts of repentance. That's good. That's right. But it's only the mercy of God that can get us to these acts of repentance. That's what verse 3 demonstrates. There's still hope. Shechaniah says, Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. So Shechaniah has proposed something pretty straightforward here. Because God is gracious, he reasons, we shouldn't go on sinning. Because God is gracious to say, well, God is gracious, so let's keep on sinning. That would be absurd. God forbid, the Bible says, right? The abundance of grace does not legitimize the continuation of sin. Rather, the abundance of grace is the power. Do you see it? The abundance of grace is the power that puts sin to death and lets us lay hold on hope. Because God is gracious, because God is merciful, run to God and then get to work. Empowered by the mercy and grace of God. So Shechaniah proposes a solution. Essentially, it's to require that those who have married pagan wives to divorce them, separate from them and their children. 
If you read that and you're puzzled, you should be. This solution is not without difficulty, and it raises many questions on its own. After all, God has made it abundantly clear what his opinion is on divorce. He hates it. He hates it. The solution that Shechaniah proposes appears to be, on the face of it, contradictory to the law of God. But according to verse 3, the end of verse 3, Shechaniah is not interested in contradicting the law of God. He encourages a repentance that brings the people in line with God's ways, not further away from it. And that's why he appeals to Ezra. And by the way, this is, the, I think, the whole reason now that Ezra has appeared on the scene. Back in chapter 7, we were told that Ezra is a man of substantial character. He's a student of God's word. Ezra 7.10, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in, in Israel. So Shechaniah urges Ezra to do just that. He says in verse 4, arise. It is your task. And we are with you. Be strong and do it. Every pastor of every church loves, or should love, Ezra 10, verse 4. Imagine a church that says to its elders, to its pastor teachers, teach us the word of God. Give us the word of God. Give us the truth of God's word straight and unfiltered. And whatever God says, we'll submit to it. We will obey God's word, no matter how challenging it is, no matter how entangled with sin, the truth reveals that we still are. What great hope for holiness there would be in a church like that. The Bible tells us, of course, That the days are coming when what we want is we want teachers who will tell us the things that go down easily. The things that will be easy to hear. The things that will keep the spotlight a little bit off of us and maybe on the, the other, the other person. You see, the problem with sin for us Christians is it entangles us in a web of moral dilemmas. That's how destructive, that's the kind of obstacle to holiness sin is for us still. And our instincts in in dealing with sin often take us further away from God's ways rather than in line with it. I'm going to give you an illustration of that in my own life. I hope that no matter who you are, maybe you're watching even right now, I'm I just I hope you'll listen to this because this is how it plays out in my own life. I was I was driving home from church the other day and I went a different direction than I normally go, and um, of course the the area in which we our church is um, is where the annual gay pride parade usually occurs. It's usually kind of in our neighborhood, and uh, so I drove drove by a hotel up on 39th Street, um, which is usually bustling with people this time. And 
I drove by an individual who was dressed very provocatively, interestingly, strangely. And here's what I noticed happened in my own heart at that moment. I felt disgust. I, I felt toward that person judgment, condemnation. This is what often happens in our hearts. We see how important holiness is. And then when we see sin in somebody else, we think separation, judgment. I got to stay away. I don't want to be swept up into that unbiblical agenda. And I began to think, what would be the heart of Christ toward that person? What's the heart of Christ toward me? Do I see in what seems to be so clearly the sin of another, the sin of my own heart? Do I hate, do I feel ashamed at my own sin as much as I see it in someone else? Are you, are you tracking with me? Does this happen to you at all? Do you notice this in your own heart? Or perhaps when it comes to the LGBTQ community, we recognize, and I realize those letters and brings its own confusion, but sometimes Christians noticing the hostility that is often shown toward people who are in that kind of a community begin to reason that, well, maybe we need to be more accepting of them or affirming of their argument. It seems like no matter what we do, we're falling off the cliff on either side. And every church and every pastor of a church that wants to be biblically minded should be the kind of people who say, what does the scripture tell us? How should we be? How should we act toward others? What should we see about sin in my own life? You see, you and I still need the wisdom of the word of God to show us the way of grace that leads to true holiness. When we say that God's purpose for us is holiness, I wonder what comes in your mind. I wonder what you think holiness looks like. It ought to look like the person of Jesus Christ. That's what God wants to shape us and form us into. And the word of God possesses the wisdom to lead us there. But we're going to have to know our Bibles. We're going to have to know how to read our Bibles. And we're going to have to be far more suspicious of the sin that lurks in our own hearts than we are in the sin that we see in others. So verses 9 to 17 bring the story of Ezra to a close. And here's what's amazing about this. The solution seemed pretty straightforward. But did you know? You just read, just you glance at it. It took 75 days to go through each case of intermarriage and try to sort things out. 75 days. So if you hear the proposal as simple, hey, let's just divorce those, those gals and separate from the kids, and you're thinking, that's going to create a problem. Yeah, it took 75 days for the elders, for the teachers, for the instructors of the law to try to come up with the best solution given the problem of sin that remained among the people of God. 75 days. Maybe we need a lot more grace in our churches as we're all pursuing holiness together. It took a long time to think deeply and biblically about the matter 
and how enmeshed in sin and its consequences the people were. This is the work that God, by his grace, continues to do among us, continues to do among your brothers and sisters here. He continues to do through the counsel of his word as it's proclaimed to us week by week, day by day. Oh, that we had churches filled with Christians who said, God, do a sanctifying work of holiness on my own heart. Make me more like Jesus. Would the world see a different church than it tends to see today? This is an act itself, an evidence of God's grace among us as he brings to completion the work of holiness that he himself has started. So brothers and sisters, don't resist it. Don't run from it. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done, there is still hope for us. Whatever sin remains in our hearts, God is at work by his grace and through his mercy to bring us even still hope for his holiness. Let's pray together. So now, Father, this is our prayer. It's the reason we gather week by week. It's the reason we come to your table. The greatest sinners that we know ought to be the sinner that we look at in the mirror every day. Hmm. Free us from judgment toward others because we recognize the righteous justice of God if it were poured out upon us would annihilate us. But instead, we've been given mercy, a little reviving in our slavery. The Son of God came and said, the kingdom of God is at hand. So everyone must repent. So we repent. As your church, we repent. We want to turn away, oh God, from our sin from the way we set ourselves up above others. We do it among our own, our own families. We do it. We shift the blame instead, instead of accepting the shame of what our sins deserve. Oh, I'm asking that you would humble all of us, starting with me and my brother elders, May we be the first to see the sin of our own hearts. Holiness only lets us to, gives us the lens to see just how far we've fallen and apart from the mercy and grace of God, the judgment that we would endure forever. I'm just praying for my brothers and sisters this morning. I'm asking that you would bring us to the table today humbled, humbled. It's only your mercy that gives us one more breath. In humility, O oh God, sanctify your people today. Make us a little bit more like Jesus. That's what the world needs. It needs to hear good news and it needs to see that that good news is embraced and embodied somewhere, that it makes a difference. There is no other hope than the hope we find in you.